Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The Brexit negotiations are ongoing and painful. The latest and uh, probably one of the most difficult stumbling blocks is the issue of the Irish border. And here to talk about this with us ahead of St. Patrick's Day tomorrow in the U.S., Marianne Harkin, European Union Parliament member representing Ireland. but she is here with us here in our 1130 studios in New York. Thank you so much for joining us, Marion. Uh, I want to just talk about this. According to several diplomats in a Bloomberg News story, uh, there hasn't been a lot of progress made on this Irish border issue. Can you just describe the issue from your perspective and what needs to happen for a deal to be reached? Well, good morning to you, Lipsant, to all your listeners. Unfortunately, today, just before I arrived here, I had a very quick look at a report which has just come out from the House of Commons Northern Ireland Committee. And they say that they have failed to find a technical solution for this frictionless soft border that we're supposed to have. And not only do they say that, they say there is no evidence that such a, a type of border can be found anywhere in the world. So so what is this soft border? It's basically a way for Ireland to maintain access, direct access to the European Union, correct? Well, a soft border would be between the Republic and Northern Ireland. As of now, free flow of goods, people, services, animals, etc. But after Brexit, we will have a different regulatory regime. We will have different rules, etc. And we have to find a solution because we do not want a border on the island of Ireland. Now, I understand that there is going to be a a European Commission and Irish government and UK government meeting that will take place March uh, 26th. Uh, It will last until April the 18th. And the idea is to resolve these issues about policing the, uh, the Irish border when the UK leaves the European Union. If this committee does not reach some kind of consensus, what's your worst case scenario for what the border looks like after the United Kingdom leaves the European Union? Well, I hate even to say what the worst case scenario is because nobody, absolutely nobody, north or south of the border wants to see that. We do not want to go back to the bad old days when there were customs points, police, soldiers, etc. on the border. And the issue is, Pim, that just before Christmas, the British government signed an agreement which gave three options. Number one, the trade deal, the comprehensive trade deal, it would do with the EU would solve the issue of the border. Number two, if that didn't work, they would set up some kind of a a specific arrangement for the Republic and Northern Ireland. And number three, the backstop option, which was that there would be full regulatory alignment between the Republic and the North. And if either one or two 
are not possible, then three still remains. But the problem is that that would mean a border in the Irish Sea and the DUP, which is the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, have said that's not acceptable. So the main obstacle at this point is who? Well, the main obstacle is that the, the British government have signed an agreement to say they will either do one, two or three and they are not coming up with technical, feasible solutions to deliver any of those three. I suppose, number one, the trade deal, that's for further down the line. Okay, so the fact that uh, the British leadership hasn't come up with technical solutions, how much does that reflect a broader issue that you see of this entire Brexit negotiation of a lack of details and a lack of cohesion? Look, my personal opinion, and I know it's shared by many, is nobody thought this would happen. And when it did, everybody was taken by surprise. And I mean, we had the likes of Boris Johnson just recently saying that the border between the Republic and the North was the very same as the border between two boroughs in London. I mean, such an incredible level of ignorance in the sense of not knowing about an international border is just unbelievable. So that is part of the, if you like, the background to all of this, that Nobody was prepared for this. Nobody thought through what the main outcomes of a Brexit would be on the island of Ireland. So, you know, the British government are, as as Jean-Claude Juncker said, I listened to him in the parliament. I was sitting there listening to him this week. And he said, it's time to turn uh, fine words into treaties. In other words, We need the detail. We need to sort this. And we're not getting it from the British. Is the European Union and leaders in the European Union, are they trying to push or have they pushed UK Prime Minister Theresa May into a corner from which it is more difficult for her to extricate herself? And this is in the context that, as you mentioned, the DUP uh, has 10 members of parliament, which are part of her governing coalition in Westminster. And she has not only to assuage their demands, but also uh, she needs to be, I guess, remain firm in this, in gaining, taking the support of her uh, fellow conservative members of parliament. Well, again, my perspective on this is, Pim, that Brexit day one was about a split in the Conservatives. And the question is, what's changed? What's new? Look at what's happening. So to some extent, you're right. She is in a corner. But the question is, who put her there? How much of this is her own making or Cameron's own making? And, you know, what can the EU do to try to ensure that we can reach some kind of agreement? This whole phrase of cake and eat it is still there. It's still part of the negotiations. As I said, I don't think anybody actually ever thought this would happen, and therefore no plans in place to deal with it. Marion, real quickly, do you think that the uh, messiness is discouraging some of the populism that we had seen previously? In the UK? Yes. 
Well, I think I saw a programme the other night um, where a very well-known British chef or cook, Prulith, she'd be seen as sort of a very sensible sort of woman. And she actually just said, look, it's time just to get on with it. And there was everybody in the audience clapped even though there were people in that audience who were Remain and people who were Brexit. So this, the I think the feeling may be coming to the point that we just have to deal with this. What is it, 380 days and it's all over. So I think maybe that's the way the British people are beginning to think. Well, maybe they can uh, influence the negotiators. Marion Harkin, thank you very much. European Union Parliament member representing Ireland. Shares of Walmart dropped yesterday after a Bloomberg News exclusive story that talked about a whistleblower suit against the company charging that they encouraged manipulation of some of their online sales numbers. Here to talk about that and other issues that Walmart is currently facing is Jennifer Batashis, senior U.S. food retail mass merchant wholesale restaurants analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Alan Bierga, agricultural reporter for Bloomberg News. Jennifer, I want to start with you to talk about this whistleblower suit. What was your reaction to it? Does it seem uh, feasible? Does it pass the smell test? Um, you know, when, when you look at how the market reacted, there was an initial initial reaction, and this, the stock really regained a lot of what it lost uh, fairly quickly following the, the news. Um, when you when you look at it, it's hard to believe that Walmart would really open itself up to this sort of risk, um, especially when you think of all the measures it put into place following the bribery probe that that it was uh, involved with um, that started back in 2012, when Walmart was um, accused of being engaged in a multi-year bribery campaign in Mexico. So the, the company is very sensitive about its ethics and compliance at this point. So it's hard to believe that um, that something of this scale. Um, would be taking place. Well, Jennifer, just tell us who is actually the whistleblower. Give us a little background. Um, well, so the, the whistleblower is, is a, an, an ex-employee, um, you know, someone who's been involved in the e-commerce side of the business. Um, formerly and, at and Amazon. Formerly at Amazon. Um, and, and really, you know, the, 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 the qualms are center around the idea that, that um, there's some artificial manipulation in the numbers that were actually published. Um, whether it's by underreporting returns or not processing returns or things of that nature, um, and so you know it's 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 difficult with a, a retail business the size of Walmart to to you know assume that everything happens exactly when it's supposed to, um, but the fact that you know the employee um, you know it, it just it seems that is it seems that if something happened it may be more of an isolated incident than the pattern of abuse that is out you know that is. Um, alleged in the suit. Although the fact that the stocks responded at all highlights this increasing challenge that Walmart faces to keep up with Amazon and to lower costs going forward. Alan, I want you to come on in here. There was a story that caught our attention about how Walmart might consider using drones to help reduce 
agricultural costs, in other words, planting and uh, weeding and doing other things like that. Can you explain what is this? Well, this sounds like nothing that has anything to do with a, a whistleblower suit, but there actually is a connection here. Um, Walmart gets more than half of its revenues from groceries at this point. And of course, Amazon is becoming a big entrant into the grocery market. And Walmart is looking at ways to make itself ever more efficient. Um, and part of that is looking at agricultural drones. Uh, Walmart is known for very tight control of its supply chains. And ultimately, one of the things it could do is find technology that allows it to even have more control by requiring farmers, for example, to use these specific drones to cut down on pesticide applications because of the efficiency of using something mechanized rather than human beings who tend to be more wasteful. Alan, you know, uh, I have to confess that you and I share a love of videos looking at the variety of planters, automatic planters that a variety of agriculture companies have come up with in order to sow the seeds, literally, uh, of farms. Who doesn't, though, Pim? Well, I mean, no, it's, it's, it, I, and I think, I think it's, you're it's, the odd one out here, Lisa. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, and the reason I bring this up is because I wonder if you could just describe, step back and describe for people the, cha- you know, they may not understand exactly the mechanization and the automation that is taking place on the farm. Sure. I mean, the story of agriculture is the story of mechanization. I mean, people stopped being hunter-gatherers because they learned to domesticate crops. You know, the tractor was a big innovation of the 19th and 20th centuries, you know, things like the reaper. And now we have precision agriculture that, you know, gives you opportunities to put your seeds exactly where they're most fertile in the soil. A lot of people are seeing this sort of drone technology as the next frontier. Right now, drones are very much used to sort of map fields, fly around, survey soil, soil tops, see how the harvest is going. But this would be where you could be using big data and a drone basically to come up with the most efficient application of inputs to your field possible. One of the patents that Walmart has, it's gotten a lot of attention, actually deals with bees, the idea that you could start mechanically pollinating things rather than using insects. So Jennifer, come on in here. I'd love your Mm -hmm. take on whether Walmart is doing enough or spending too much on sort of nascent technologies that could eventually reduce costs. Yeah, so, so, you know, to me, the story um, is, is less about bees, um, but more about the, uh, the idea that Walmart is taking a broad approach to technology. Um, and it's really a, f- a reflection of all of the investments that they have been making since 2011. Um, I think that right now, in a world where technology is progressing at such an unprecedented rate, um, Walmart can't afford to not be participating in all of these iterations of potential technologies. Um, whether, you know, it seems that they've done fairly well in terms of balancing the, the, the cost of participating in the technology evolution versus running their day-to-day business. Um, you know, however, investors are expecting that there is a payoff with regards to seeing actual growth in sales and not only in their stores, but in the, in-line, on the, in the online um, e-commerce world as well. Alan, uh, just a thought for you. Is uh, this not just limited to the planting and cultivation of uh, of crops? This is also about harvesting as well. Yes. I mean, you're looking for patents. Walmart has filed 46 patents dealing with everything from the planting to the logistics of it. And I would respectfully disagree with my co-guest. I actually think this is all about bees in the sense that bees are a variable cost. Pollination becomes more and less expensive. And what Walmart's trying to do as they get their costs down is they try to make things more reliable, down the road, find the technology that allows them to compete with Amazon and beat them at their own low price game. So, you know, metaphorically, some of this stuff seems very, very, you know, space age and and several years away. And and maybe it's just gaining some intellectual property so you can sue Amazon down the road. We don't know. But the point is, you know, as we've been saying, Walmart is trying to get the technology that gets them ahead so that they can win not in just today's marketplace, but tomorrow's as well.
Want to thank you both very much. Uh, Alan Bjurga joining us, our agriculture reporter for Bloomberg News, and Jennifer Bartashis, a senior U.S. food and retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Tim, you're going to have to share some of those scintillating videos with me. You just haven't shared the... Ah, I just got an there email. You go. you it's do, all about you know, the bees. It's all about the bees. And these, and these videos. Well... Check it out. It's uh, an amazing story. <laughs> the automation of the uh, U.S. farm and none better than Alan Bjurger to tell us about it. A ruling from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission touched off a sell-off in Master Limited Partnerships yesterday. At one point, the Alarian MLP index was off by about 10%. It ended up closing lower by about 4.5%. The uh, issue has to do with Master Limited Partnerships operating interstate pipelines, and they charge customers uh, a price under a cost-of-service model. Now, they also have to collect a portion to cover corporate tax charges, but because they are Master Limited Partnerships, they don't actually pay these taxes. Here to help us understand this more is Chuck Lieberman. He is a Bloomberg profit and also chief investment officer and managing partner for Advisors Capital Management. Uh, Chuck, uh, maybe you could just expand on my attempt to explain what is going on here. Well, you did a pretty good job, Tim. Uh, so there are contracts for pipelines that are done as cost plus. And the question then is what is included in costs? And there's an allowance for corporate tax rates, although, as you point out, the pipelines uh, structured as partnerships do not, in fact, pay taxes, and that's why uh, it was disallowed now. It's a long-term issue. It's been uh, debated for 20 years. Uh, the courts weighed in, and that finally pushed FERC to kick that stuff out. Now, keep in mind that most contracts are not cost-plus. They're negotiated between the pipeline and the uh, shipper. Um, and now, of course, one way to get around this ruling is to renegotiate those contracts, the, the cost-plus contracts, uh, on a negotiated basis uh, directly with the shipper and restructure them. Uh, there's also another aspect of it, which is it only affects companies that are structured as partnerships. A lot of these pipeline companies are structured as uh, C-corporations, standard corporations. They do pay tax. Those companies can, in fact, uh, would, in a cost-plus contract, add in the cost of the tax. Uh, and it is likely that uh, this ruling will accelerate the consolidation of partnerships with their C-corporation parents. Uh, that's another trend that's been going on in the industry, and probably more companies will do it sooner than expected because of this ruling. Yeah. You know, just broadening out. So so clearly there are people on both sides here who think that this is going to hurt MLPs and other people who think that the move has been overdone. I thought it was interesting, though, because the biggest exchange traded fund that tracks America's energy pipelines, uh, Alarian uh, ETF, saw a $118 million outflow yesterday, which is the biggest one day withdrawal since July of last year. What this indicates to me is that the retail investors or sort of the peripheral investors will be quick to leave should there be any threat to the tax benefit that these funds uh, enjoy. How much of a concern is that to you, just the perception of these funds? 
uh, it's a huge concern, and that's actually the, the primary driver in the entire sector. So if you go back to 2014, oil prices fell. That actually boosted demand for products like gasoline. So some pipelines saw an immediate boost to shipments. Uh, some of the downstream pipeline businesses uh, saw an increase in business and an increase in profitability. Don't confuse me with facts. They sold off, too because there's a general lack of understanding on the part of retail investors, so they have been getting out of the space. They've lost money in the space. Therefore, they've been getting out of the space. And all of this has driven all of these stocks literally across the board, including companies that really have not been affected by the decline in oil prices, that have seen an increase in business volumes anyway. They have still declined in value. And most of these things are trading at low low levels, uh, meaning very, very attractive valuations. And now this is just one more uh, kick in the rear end at a time when the stocks are already down. And I'm sure there are a lot of unsophisticated investors who were saying, I've, been, I've lost too much money. This doesn't seem to be turning around. I don't understand what's going on. I want out. So I'm sure that it's a negative. Okay, but as a sophisticated investor, and uh, of course, that's one of the reasons we speak to you, Chuck, this, uh, what, pr maybe presents an opportunity because, number one, uh, it may have been an exaggerated response to this ruling, but also, if these master limited partnerships decide, you know what, we can't spend all this time, money, and effort educating people about what we really are, we're just going to turn ourselves into a regular C-Corp. That's going to make it more attractive for institutional investors to buy them, right? Uh, that's exactly right, and I and I expect all of that to happen. Uh, I do think that uh, a lot of these uh, unsophisticated investors are going to methodically continue to pull out because they don't understand. The institutional investors will want to get in. In fact, some of them have been getting in. But I think what will really turn it around is if more of the companies turn themselves into C-corporations and then become part of indexes, uh, because then they can be. Uh, all of that will bring in uh, new buyers, and uh, they'll take advantage of the fact that pricing is very, very attractive. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Charles Lieberman, uh, Chuck Lieberman, uh, Bloomberg Profit and Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner at Advisors Capital Management, talking about the MLP kerfluffle yesterday. And you know, it's funny, uh, Pim, in the past few years, there have been record amounts of MLPs that have IPO'd. So uh, it's very interesting to see the turmoil now and to wonder whether retail investors are going to exit until the opportunity is lost. Cyber attacks are literally happening hundreds of thousands of times a day. This according to Energy Secretary Rick Perry uh, in a speech to lawmakers during a hearing yesterday here to speak about these attacks which are ongoing uh, and are targeting the U.S. electric grid is Dr. Eric Cole, Chief Executive Officer of Secure Anchor Consulting in Ashburn, Virginia. He comes to us from Los Angeles today. Uh, Dr. Cole, thanks so much for being here. I just would love to get your perspective on where these attacks are mostly coming from and which infrastructure uh, they are targeting? They're coming from the usual players, Russia, China, North Korea. But what we've seen in the last six months is that cyber attacks level the playing field. There are some small countries 
that can't play in the nuclear weapon space. It's either too expensive or they're regulated. But when it comes to cyber weapons, anybody can build them. So we're even seeing some of these smaller countries, Pakistan and others, starting to target the U.S. infrastructure. And what they're really trying to do is have command and control capability. So they're targeting water, electrical, nuclear, uh, air traffic control. And most people think if they break in, that they're going to want to go in and take it down and destroy it, but it's really more of a threat. If they have control of our nuclear power plants, they now can influence the United States in a lot of different areas. Dr. Cole, uh, I'm wondering if you could just step back, and and perhaps this is not your purview, but I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, Do we have a clear definition of who, quote, the enemy of the United States is or who are our enemies? In the real world, we have allies. In cyberspace, there is no allies. So in cyberspace, I would say every other country other than the U.S. is our enemy. And even surprisingly, a lot of cyber attacks against the U.S. are coming from Canada. Okay. The reason I ask this is because... Article 3, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution seems pretty clear. If a subversive act has any tendency to weaken the power of the United States to attack or resist its enemies, aid and comfort has been given. That's the definition of treason. Why is this so difficult for both the uh, prosecutors, it seems, of these acts and those that are defending this as a freedom of speech uh, notion? Why are they so, why is it the, the Constitution not able to be used in order to prosecute this? problem in cyberspace is attribution, knowing who's actually doing the attack. So, for example, we know that attacks are coming from Russia, but finding the exact location, the physical location, is very hard. Also, we have seen cases where we had attacks that we thought were coming from China, and it was actually the Russians breaking into Chinese systems and then attacking us from there. So it looked like the Chinese, but it was actually the Russians. So the attribution is our big challenge. And that's why this takes a lot of work and a lot of time and energy to figure out who's really behind the attacks. All right. So, Eric, uh, one thing that's notable is there is this report uh, by the U.S. government talking about how Russia in particular has launched uh, many attacks on a variety of different infrastructure uh, systems, whether it was the electric grid, water processing plants, air transportation facilities, etc. Why haven't we heard more about this? Why haven't they been successful? The, the reason why they've been successful is we are making it easier for them. Typically, In the past, when you designed and built nuclear reactors and the computers that supported them, known as CDAs, critical digital assets, they were always disconnected from the Internet. They never had any connectivity, so there was no way for somebody to attack remotely. In the last year, we are starting to interconnect these systems to make it easier to monitor and more functionality, and that's really the big problem. We're taking systems that were never designed to be accessible from the Internet and making them accessible, and the reason why it's taking so long, and this is the scary part, we're not detecting these attacks. It's taking us 15 to 20 months 
to catch and find the fact that they broke into our systems. Well, but Eric, I mean, just to, to play devil's advocate, okay, perhaps they've broken in, but we haven't heard about incredible disruptions in the power grid or the water system. Are they being hidden? Are they are they affecting uh, people's access to clean water? Or is this, uh, is this just sort of a more subtle type of attack? It's more subtle, and right now, it's more the fear of the threat. And the analogy is it's like nuclear weapons. The Russians have a ton of nuclear weapons, but they haven't used them. But just the fact that they have them puts them in a power, sorry, a position of power. And it's similar here. They've broken into our systems. They've taken control. They haven't done any massive attacks, but that gives them a position of power to be able to negotiate differently with the United States. Dr. Cole, uh, if you were to advise the chief executives of corporations that control these essential utilities, what would you be advising them today, March 16th, to do? The first thing I would recommend is to any critical systems, any critical infrastructure, disconnect from the Internet. I work in a lot of these areas. I travel around the world with critical infrastructure. It's not worth the benefit. Second, do a discovery exercise to know where your critical data is. In so many cases, organizations don't even know where the data is located. And then third, assume you're compromised and now go in and say, okay, if we are compromised, how do we find and get them out of our networks as opposed to just accepting it and not dealing with the problem? Is it also something as prosaic as preventing people from using their own personal communication devices within the actual physical plants of these institutions? Yes, that's absolutely a component of it, is not allowing people to bring personal devices. We have seen many cases where people bring cell phones that inadvertently are infected with malware. They plug it in to a control system to charge the USB, and it infects the system. So you really want to have what we call air-gapped, where there's no connectivity with any other device uh, from the outside world. And just finally, uh, Dr. Cole, do we know, I mean, you mentioned that we don't know a lot about what's going on uh, as far as the attacks. Do you believe that these organizations, these companies in the United States, that they know their own vulnerabilities? I believe they know some but they don't know all. And we have a lot of situations like with the Equifax and others where there's one or two systems that they didn't know about that led to the compromise, and that's the problem. 98% security means 2% exposure, and it's always the part you don't know about that causes the problems. Our thanks to Dr. Eric Cole. He is the chief executive of Secure Anchor Consulting. They are based in Ashburn, Virginia. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Eric Cole. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.